most convincing story that maps onto reality, and that's why the central narrative is falling apart. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. We must see the central narrative for the fiction that it is. We are Americans. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Monday, February 21st, 2022, the 397th day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. We're going to pick up where we left off on Friday with our neighbors to the north in Canada and the fascist regime that is currently controlling the country. And of course, the fascists I'm referring to are Castro's bastard, Justin Snow, and his partner in the World Economic Forum, his deputy prime minister, Christia Freeland. On Friday, we were talking about how they had escalated the entire situation. Trudeau put the Emergencies Act into effect last Monday. It used to be called the War Powers Act. That's the sort of situation it's supposed to be used in, not a bunch of truckers came to peacefully protest in the nation's capital city, which is where protests do commonly occur in countries. It's actually the appropriate place for that protest because it is their central federal government that is responsible for the COVID protocols and restrictions and mandates that the protesters are there to protest. The protesters were peaceful. Their cause is legitimate and righteous, and they were protesting in the proper place. Yes, bouncy castles and street hockey games may be out of line, but at least it's in the right place. It's not like in the summer of 2020 when a man died of a fentanyl overdose under a police officer's knee after resisting arrest. And so Black Lives Matter Antifa decided to assault a federal courthouse in Portland for the next 120 days. It's not like that. This protest is actually ideologically coherent in some fashion. The protesters didn't go and loot businesses in Saskatoon or harass people in their homes in Moose Jaw or tear down statues in Punky Doodle's Corner, which is a real place. They went to peacefully protest and make their voices heard in the seat of government in the nation's capital because they had finally reached the common understanding that their government is not operating on the science and is not trying to save people's lives. They are simply putting 
more rules in place so that people will follow those rules. And what the Canadian government's endgame for those rules is still sort of unclear, but they better figure it out really fast because the images coming out of Canada this weekend are in some sense horrifying. And I say in some sense because it's kind of what we've come to expect from governments enthralled to the global communist order and Canada's government as it stands now with Justin Trudeau and Christia Freeland and the rest are certainly enthralled to the global communist order. The most recent episode of Joe Rogan's podcast came out over the weekend and featured a man named Majid Nawaz, who you may be familiar with, but he laid it down pretty well for the last probably two hours of that episode. It was a little over three hours long. He laid it down pretty well about what's going on in the world right now, China's involvement, the World Economic Forum's involvement, the propaganda state media. He actually had them play the clip of Klaus Schwab talking about how they have captured parts of government cabinets around the world. They've probably got 50% of Canada's governing cabinet covered by World Economic Forum, Freeland and Trudeau, Castro are both young global leaders in the World Economic Forum. And Joe Rogan reacted like all of this is brand new information. He kind of gave some hints to understanding some of it, noting that Klaus Schwab actually does have a book called COVID-19, The Great Reset. So how is it possible? And he was hinting at this. How is it possible that The Great Reset is a conspiracy theory as it's described online if Klaus Schwab has a book called COVID-19, The Great Reset? And that's a significant advancement in positions for Joe Rogan at this point, I would say. And I'll repeat like I always do. Man, I have loved Joe Rogan for much of the last decade. These last two years have made me doubt him in major ways. And, you know, I'm open to this being some strategy of awakening. But if that's true, why didn't we just do it two years ago? And Joe Rogan really does seem to be confused about a lot of this stuff. Yesterday in that episode, well, I listened to it yesterday. I'm sure they recorded it sometime within the last few weeks. But listening to that episode, Joe Rogan actually suggested that the reason people talk about election fraud is because it seems like you're playing like spy games. It's all very exciting and thrilling to imagine this vast conspiracy that stole the election. And hey, Joe, that's not what it is. Okay. Anyone who looks to find out what the evidence of election fraud actually is will be convinced by that evidence really quickly because it turns out that there actually aren't any sound arguments that there was not election fraud. At this point, it's a better argument to say that whether or not there was election fraud, Joe Biden was certified and then inaugurated as president. Therefore, he's president. Therefore, he's legitimate. At least that argument in some way is coherent and makes sense. It's still premised on the presence of fraud and overwhelming fraud, but at least that is a sensible position. Saying that you are convinced there's absolutely no election fraud in the 2020 election in America, 
just based on the media driven sentiment about Donald Trump versus Joe Biden, that misses the entire picture. All people ever argue when they're saying there's no election fraud is that the courts didn't decide in Trump's favor. They have no idea about any of the court cases. They don't know that some of those court cases are ongoing. They don't know that fraud later could still show that everything emanating from that fraud is also an act of fraud. They don't understand that. They believe the CISA statement that it was the most safe and secure election of all time. They have four words, safe and secure election that they take from CISA and they just say it over and over and over and over and over again. That's very stupid. And they heard Bill Barr say that he hasn't yet seen enough evidence that would have uh, changed the outcome of the election. And at that point, that's fine. Who knows what role Bill Barr will ultimately play in all of this. And he was out the door two weeks later before Trump's term even ended. So his motivations are still a big question mark. And then the only other argument they have is that the TV told them a certain thing. The TV has enforced that thing over and over and over again. And they don't see in their little child brains, they don't see any possible way that fraud could have happened on such a massive scale because they don't understand election fraud at all. So it's really disappointing to hear someone like Joe Rogan, who usually you would expect to have an open mind about an entire range of subjects. He's actually gone even further than not having an open mind about election fraud. Now he's making up ridiculous excuses about why all of the claims can be dismissed. It's all some conspiracy theorists fever dream. But that said, it is still great that his show has the audience size it has and it has the impact it has because people need to begin hearing about Klaus Schwab and the World Economic Forum and the Chinese Communist Party and about what this larger agenda actually is and how many people it encompasses, because that's one of their very child brained arguments for why the coronavirus narrative couldn't actually all be a lie because all the other countries were in on it. Are you really going to tell me that all these leaders around the world were just in on the same idea? Well, yeah, Kami, of course they are. What do you mean? Why wouldn't they be in on the same idea if they have the same goals? If you have an idea and you have a goal, the best way to accomplish that goal, if it encompasses large amounts of people, a very complicated operation, well, the best way to accomplish that is to get all the allies you can. You want to make your business stronger? Well, you form alliances with other local businesses, with people who can get word out about your business, with PR agencies, with local politicians who might help your business succeed by changing laws or rules or regulations that might be harming your business's ability to succeed. And sometimes that's justified and sometimes it's not. But the idea that there is some sort of alliance between the leaders often illegitimate leaders of all these nations that are already in alliances, right? They're in treaties. They're in the UN. They show up to the World Economic Forum in Davos or they appear virtually. 
There is nothing confusing about those people all wanting to implement the same plans along the same timeline. That's literally what the plan is. And they're not shy about talking about it. That's why it is so insane that people still think this stuff is a conspiracy. When people are denying this stuff, what they're saying is that they don't have any information about that stuff. And in their worldview, they're extremely small-minded, sheltered worldview inside the bubble. They just can't imagine that that much evil exists in the world. Why not? It's on full display everywhere. Honestly, everywhere. In Ottawa over the weekend, the riot police came out with their batons. They were beating people down. They were spraying people in the face with pepper spray. A journalist from Rebel News got shot in the leg with a canister of tear gas. A woman who's like 70 plus years old and a member of the Canadian indigenous community that they refer to as First Nations. She was moving around on a mobility scooter or like some kind of little walker and a horse trampled her. The initial reports were that she died, but it seems that she is living and in stable condition and has a dislocated shoulder. But they had horses run over the crowd and it looks intentional. You can watch the video. The horses could have waited. They could have dispersed the crowd with people. Instead, the horses just ran right through it, hoping people would get out of the way. But people can't always get out of the way, especially if you're an old lady on a mobility scooter. Yesterday, there were a series of leaked messages from a group chat, looks like maybe WhatsApp, from the from members of the RCMP, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. They were bragging to one another. They were like talking shit about their jackboots stomping on people and how awesome that horse maneuver was. And they were taking pictures of one another, like eating in the warmth in this banquet room at the Chateau Laurier, where the members of the RCMP apparently were staying. Interestingly, that hotel is also where you saw the shots of that very scary Nazi flag and Justin Trudeau's photographer in the picture. Some independent people online have been compiling those pictures and suggesting that that literal false flag operation was run out of that venue. That might be kind of their base of operations in some sense. And we may get more information on that down the line. But they were joking about injuring people, about their jack boots, about getting their overtime pay. And the state media pretty much echoed the same thing. They were saying that no protesters were harmed. The protesters were the violent ones and that the ladies walker was actually a bicycle that she had thrown at the horses. That's how ridiculous what's happening there is. That is how far into the police state, the Orwellian police state, they are. The actual reality on the ground is so bad looking for the regime that they are presenting 
a complete and total fiction as the reality that goes out to all of their supporters and their supporters are going to feel perfectly justified staying in the mindset they are currently in, which is that the truckers are violent white nationalists who are simply trying to overthrow Canada's government, just like the violent white nationalists did in the United States, too. But just like the very violent insurrection at the nation's capital last year on January 6th, over the course of the coming days, maybe weeks or months, but information is moving quickly right now. Over that time, we're going to see the narrative unravel on what's happening in Ottawa the same way it unraveled after the very violent insurrection. The actual facts, the circumstances in reality do not support the narrative that the state propaganda media is trying to sell the people. And the pictures coming out of there are just overwhelming in the videos and whatever else. A lot of independent journalists doing a great job down there. And a lot of the protesters are filming what's going on and that stuff circulating around the Internet. Real people are bypassing the state propaganda media and finding information for themselves. That is going to have a huge impact. Also, some of the content being put out on social media, even on legacy social media, is the sort of stuff that can have a real impact. There was one picture yesterday that really kind of blew my mind. It was basically the Canadian flag, right? It has the two red bands on the side and then the red maple leaf in the center, except the leaf had like fallen to the ground. And that is the sort of content, the sort of piece of content that the virtue signaling child brains on Instagram, on Twitter, on Facebook would love to be posting if it supported their side. You know how all the stuff that they always post they're, of course, always wrong and misunderstanding the situation completely, but they're always emoting. They're always talking about how sad and unfortunate it is that this thing happened. And because they're having those feelings, you must understand that their feelings about the situation are honest. Therefore, their interpretation of the situation is also honest. Therefore, their interpretation is what's really happening. Right now, we have a real situation where state violence is being perpetrated at will using extra constitutional powers on the people of Canada. And these normally very caring people on social media can't lift a finger. And I hope everyone out there is taking note of these people who see themselves constantly as these very self-righteous activists on the left. Every cause that hits the media, they put out the right opinion about it. They put all the slogans out all over everywhere online, but they won't say a thing about what's happening now because Justin Trudeau is one of their fellow travelers. This guy, in some way, they allow him to be an avatar for who they are politically, the same way that they did with Barack Obama and the same way they kind of pretended to during the election with Joe Biden. But they will not say a word about this incredible violation of human rights that our 
fake administration. Oh, happy President's Day, fake administration. None of you are the president, especially not Joe Biden. But they should all be saying something about this. They should be making statements. They should be threatening sanctions against Canada for doing this to their citizens. But they won't because they like it. It helps their agenda. And I'm talking about the fake administration and all the child-brained communists on legacy social media who won't say a word about this. And there have been some pretty great memes about Castro's bastard this weekend. He's being represented as Mao and Stalin and Lenin, and he's being totally Nazified. And all of that follows a direct and exact historical parallel right down to the people involved with it. It is not a mistake that Justin Trudeau's real father is Fidel Castro, that Christia Freeland's grandfather was a Nazi. And so the meme war is in full effect. And I have to imagine that all of those people, all of those very woke, very progressive, very activist people that I used to be surrounded by in Hollywood. Well, they're looking at this stuff, seeing Justin Trudeau portrayed as a Nazi, seeing this fall of Canada in some sense. They're probably seeing very small parts of it, truthfully. But imagine what they must be wrestling with right now. You know, if you're in denial about something, and we've all been in denial about things throughout our lives, it's not like only one side can sit in denial. It's not only one side that can depart from reality about this or that. Now, they've departed from reality about everything. Entirely different story. But they still know that this is a wave of truth that is beginning to push them back. Justin Trudeau really is this person. He really does represent the ascendancy of a violent dictatorial regime that means to stay in power. And as Trudeau's fellow travelers in the global communist movement, they understand that this reflects on them as well. They have every opportunity to stand up and say something about this, to broadcast these messages online, but they won't. They will watch that regime rise in real life without saying a word about it because they don't want to be personally exposed. And I talked a lot on Friday about how these are the people who are telling everybody else if they don't want to get injected with the experimental gene therapy, it's due to their own selfishness. These people won't speak up about the rise of a communist dictatorship that borders our country because they're concerned about how it might harm their self-image. But we're selfish. Now, the trucker convoy has largely departed. So the militarism was on some level effective for the regime. Trudeau imposed all of this under the guise of the Emergencies Act, but the parliament was supposed to vote on whether or not the Emergencies Act would be put into effect. They were supposed to call that vote on Friday, but parliament was just canceled for the day because they needed to crack down militarily. So there's no opportunity for Parliament to say, no, we do not want Justin Trudeau to have these powers. 
It could be that parliament didn't want to take responsibility for handing him those powers and they would rather just have him go it alone so that the political price doesn't have to be paid individually by each of them. Entirely possible. But nonetheless, Justin Trudeau's powers that he has seized are illegitimate. The parliament should be voting on them and maybe they are today. I haven't seen anything about that yet. But what I have heard is that Justin Trudeau has no plans to let go of his emergency powers. As I said, the Emergencies Act is not something to undertake lightly. And it's something that needs to be momentary, temporary, and proportional. That's why every single day I'm receiving briefings and we are reflecting on how much longer the Emergencies Act needs to be in place. We don't want to keep it in place a single day longer than necessary. But even though Uh, The blockades are lifted uh, across border uh, openings right now. Uh, Even though uh, things seem to be resolving very well in Ottawa, this state of emergency is not over. Uh, There continues to be real concerns uh, about the coming days, uh, but we will continue to evaluate every single day uh, whether or not uh, it is uh, time and we are able to lift this state of emergency. So he starts out by saying that the state of emergency should be temporary and limited. And that's probably the quote that will be printed by the newspapers. It's the soundbite that will be shown on the evening news. But he still maintains the powers indefinitely. He said there are still, quote, real concerns. They always use those words like real to make it sound more dramatic. What is a real concern as opposed to just a concern? Oh, the real concern. So you're not just making it up. Is that what you're saying? Or is there actually an existential threat that Canada faces, which is what the Emergencies Act is supposed to be there for? And of course, you won't name any of the real concerns. You just have to understand that the truckers could rise up again with their bouncy castles and their street hockey at any point. It could pop up anywhere. If you see a bouncy castle somewhere in Come By Chance or San Luis du Haha, also real places, you will know that the Emergency Act is still justified. If you see someone playing street hockey in Mushaboom or Crotch Lake, you will know that the jackboots are only trying to keep you safe until the threat has passed. But the threat will never pass because just like in America, the greatest threat is white nationalist terrorism. And we're about to get a huge dose of that down here too. They're already putting up fencing around the nation's capital in America, just like last year, Not sure they're going to get the 25,000 National Guard troops, but the fences are going up. Joe Biden has a very legitimate State of the Union next Tuesday night that they definitely don't want to cancel and definitely won't try to use a false flag at the Capitol to cancel. There's no way they're planning anything like that. They are totally happy to have the fake president go out there and stumble through a 90 minute speech. So that they can tell the entire nation how their deft handling of the coronavirus crisis is what finally allows us to go back 
to something resembling normalcy. So what would you imagine they would prefer to put on display in the media for the next week or two weeks following Biden's State of the Union? Parts of Joe Biden's actual speech and fact checks about how false it all is? Or a white nationalist attempt to sabotage the State of the Union with trucks? I'm guessing it's the latter. They want a state of permanent insurrection to justify what they're doing to the citizens, just like in Canada. They have said that at least 206 people at this point have had their banking just frozen. So now they're cut off from money. And just another plug for the Majid Nawaz episode of Rogan. He talks in there about a global digital currency and how that relates to a social credit system. But if they maintain a permanent state of emergency, then they can continue using these powers whenever they want. They have already attempted to sell the justification for these powers. And, you know, somewhere around 20 or 30 or 40 percent of Canada is totally aligned with that, or at least they're fine with it. They're not going to say anything because those people are on board no matter how bad it gets. They like to be on the side of the power that is oppressing the people. They want to pretend that they're actually the oppressed ones. And in some way, they appropriate oppression from other groups of people, as we see here in the United States all the time. They say, well, black people are oppressed. Hispanic people are oppressed. Asian people are oppressed. Gay people, trans people, Muslims, all oppressed. And we are their allies. So now we are also part of the oppressed group. The people doing the oppressing are people that actually like to stand under their nation's flag and support their nation's sovereignty and believe that their nation exists to serve and protect the citizens of that nation. And they need to hold on to that identification at all costs, because once people realize that the oppression is coming only from one side in one direction and that all of these people are on that side, well, then the whole thing breaks down. Then they can't justify any of their actions. They can't justify their support for Black Lives Matter Antifa as they ran around the country looting stores to steal expensive merchandise which still happens. The DAs who let criminals right back out onto the streets with no bail, the burning down of businesses, the violent riots. None of that can be justified once you have the realization that you are actually on the side of oppressive state power. And that is where they will all get at some point. They're not going to have a choice. The media's ability to convince them that they are still on the right side is waning significantly, but they want to keep it going on forever, just like they have with January 6th. And here's some proof. This is the new Ottawa police chief. The old police chief resigned last week. The media stories say he resigned in disgrace because of how poorly he handled the trucker convoy situation. Not that there were all sorts of reports of violence and crime. There weren't. 
which is why they had to stage photo shoots with a Nazi flag and with a Confederate flag. And that ridiculous story that they propagated about how people involved with the convoy were trying to get meals from local homeless shelters, thus taking food out of the mouths of the homeless and needy. So if those were the worst stories, how bad really was it? Bad enough to justify this, they would like you to believe. Liam uh, from Independent Media. So I was in the crowd yesterday. Um, I was unfortunately uh, hit with some pepper spray. I just have a question. Uh, there's some video cameras that the police are using and uh, some news outlets are reporting that you're gathering intelligence with those cameras. Can you elaborate, like, if the protesters at this point, uh, you know, uh, retreat and go home, uh, are they going to be getting sort of repercussions down the road? Or are you going to be sort of actively pursuing the people that you've been sort of documenting and filming who are still out there protesting? What are your plans after this, uh, after the protest is over? Thank you. It's a great question. And the simple answer is yes. If you are involved in this protest, we will actively look to identify you and follow up with financial sanctions and criminal charges. Absolutely. This investigation will go on for months to come. It has many, many different streams, both from a federal uh, financial level, from a provincial licensing level, from a criminal code level, from a municipal breach of court order, breach of court injunction level. It will be a complicated and time consuming um, investigation that will go on for a period of time. You have my commitment that that investigation will continue and we will hold people accountable for taking our streets over. And could I just ask Thank one you. more question? Can we ask a question? Can, this includes the uh, media availability. Ceci conclude the point place. Merci. So the investigation will go on indefinitely and they're going to attempt to track down the people that were involved in a peaceful protest. He just said that they were going to go after the people who blocked their streets, right? They're going to use the whole of government power to chase down and prosecute and debank people who were involved in a peaceful protest just for being there because they need something to justify what they have already done. Just like in the United States, we're still having the January 6th, the illegitimate January 6th committee is ongoing, still trying to get information on Donald Trump, still trying to get information on whoever was involved in talking about election fraud. Like they're going after Mark Fincham, the representative from Arizona, who's working on a new ballot process and trying to expose election fraud in Arizona, where there was enormous election fraud. He's being summoned by the January 6th committee as if he somehow had something to do with the very violent insurrection. Just him speaking about election fraud and pursuing election fraud means the state can use its power to investigate him. And now we have news that Joe Biden has requested an extension of the emergency powers that were put into place to deal with the coronavirus. Those were supposed to expire in March, but now he wants them extended. Let's see what the Congress does. Will anyone stand up to Joe Biden's emergency powers? Some people have theorized that Joe Biden actually doesn't have the ability to 
remove the emergency powers in a devolution context. I don't know if that's true or not, obviously, but I can imagine that he wants those emergency powers to remain in place. If they end the national emergency for COVID, would they still be able to mandate masks, which are used under emergency use authorization, vaccines, which are used under emergency use authorization, because there is no FDA approval for any of the vaccines in use that also are not vaccines. And no one is really clamoring for those emergency powers to be removed. We should be. That should be a focus. Or at minimum, we need to be sure that this becomes a story. There is no real world situation involving coronavirus that justifies the nation being put under the conditions of a national emergency. That does not exist. There is no COVID emergency. In the UK, Boris Johnson announced today the end of all restrictions, but also the end of having to self-isolate if you have the coronavirus. And let's talk about the very deadly pandemic for just one second. A Twitter user named Charles Brewer tweeted this today, and it's really interesting and it makes a great point. He says the CDC says the average adult gets a cold two to three times per year. If we tested everyone for colds and counted every death within 30 days of a positive cold test as a cold death, then we'd have about 600,000 cold deaths per year. And I know you're thinking, yeah, but the cold doesn't kill people. Well, if you count every death experienced by people who received a positive test for the cold within 30 days of their death, like they do for COVID. And some places even longer, some places it's even 60 days. And we know that those tests, assuming they work at all, can pick up the dead COVID viral material for 12 weeks. That's 84 days. So you could be long past being sick from COVID, long past having the ability to transmit COVID to another person and still get a COVID test 80 days into COVID and have it be positive. And then any death within 30 days after that would count as a COVID death. That's the situation that we've been in in America for this entire time. And so he breaks down the math on this in the tweet. Average colds per year, 2.5, right? You get two to three colds per year. That's the average. So he takes 2.5. Number of days after the cold test, the positive test that you get for the cold, that deaths continue to count as cold deaths in this hypothetical, 30 days. So that means 30 times 2.5 is 75. That means there are 75 days in a year on average that someone could fit into the cold positive window and be counted as a death from the cold 365 days in a year. That means the percent of those days, 75 days out of the 365, that's 21% of the year. You could be in that window to have your death counted as a cold death on average. There are 2.9 million deaths in America every year. That would mean that there are 595,890 deaths from the cold if we were classifying deaths from the cold the way we classify deaths from the coronavirus. 
Sounds super legitimate, huh? So Bill Gates was at the Munich Security Conference in this past week, and we got some really incredible video this weekend. Bill Gates was up there being the expert of all things medicine that he is in no way trained to be. And he was acting, as always, as the delivery boy for the science. And check out what he says about it. And understand that he premises all of this with the word sadly. Where would you assess where we are today in beating COVID-19? Well, the, uh, you know, sadly, the virus itself, particularly the, the variant called Omicron, uh, is a type of vaccine. That is, it creates both B cell and T cell immunity. And it's done a better job of getting out to the world population uh, than we have with vaccines. If you do uh, sero surveys in African countries, you get well over 80% of people uh, have been exposed either to the vaccine or uh, to various variants. And so, you know, what that does is it means the chance of severe disease, which is mainly associated with being elderly and uh, having obesity or diabetes, those risks are now dramatically reduced because of that uh, infection exposure. And, you know, it's sad. We didn't do a great job on therapeutics. You know, only here, two years in, do we have a, a good therapeutic. Uh, vaccines, it took us two years to be in oversupply. Today, there are more vaccines than there is demand for vaccines. Uh, and, you know, that wasn't true. And next time we should try and make it, instead of two years, we should make it more like six months, uh, which certainly... Uh, you know, some of the standardized platform approaches, including mRNA, would allow us to do that. Sadly, too many people are immune from Omicron. Next time, they want to get the vaccine out faster so that people will be more inclined to take the vaccine because they'll be in that part of the pandemic phase where everybody's very scared. They're worried that they're going to die, so they're going to want the vaccine. Anyone with a normal, full-sized adult brain would hear all of that and think that that is a great argument against taking the vaccine or probably any vaccine ever again. But how deranged is it that he said, sadly, this was an unfortunate result for Bill Gates. He did not want the Omicron variant to do what it did, which is immunize people and protect them against dying. And then he goes on this completely counterfactual diatribe. Bill, how well do you think the media has done it policing itself when getting the facts right? And it, did it damage the world's ability to fight this pandemic? Well, I think the mainstream media did a reasonably good job. You know, it's a little too bad that the death number that was published daily didn't say, you know, unvaccinated X percent, you know, vaccinated Y percent, because then people would have seen the, you know, phenomenal difference in terms of risk of dying uh, being somebody who wasn't vaccinated. So, you know, maybe next time we'll find a better way to get that message out. The scale of the misinformation, once you move past the mainstream media, 
is so wild, you almost have to laugh about it. I mean, you know, Dr. Fauci and I are just killing millions of people to make money. Uh, you know, hydroxychloroquine is this miracle cure that somehow he and I have masterminded uh, avoiding people saving their lives by taking this thing. There's no doubt that the misinformation uh, enhanced vaccine hesitancy, and that maps to hundreds of thousands of deaths. There's no doubt that the idea that, you know, we need the freedom not to wear a mask, uh, you know, and that that's some, you know, thing that you've got to show that in many cases that led to spreading the disease into uh, locations where elderly people had very high death rates. And so, you know, as we look back over the pandemic, uh, you know, having the politicians speak out, that doesn't work very well because then you, you have a lack of trust. The CDC in, in our country could have been more front and center. Mm -hmm. Dr. Fauci became front and center. And, you know, the key message is about the vaccine is good, you should take it, and some level of mask wearing is good. I don't think he ever confused anybody about the, the primary messages that saved lives. What about masks? I think there are a lot of people in America who are confused about whether they should be wearing a mask. And in the United Kingdom, for example, they've scrapped that altogether. Well, that's interesting. You know, what is the downside of wearing a mask? I mean, it's got to be tough. You know, you have to wear pants. Uh, I mean, this is tough stuff. These societies are so cruel. Why do they make you wear pants? I'm trying to figure it out. Uh, <laughs> We're very glad you have yours on. Um, so, uh, that will be on the web. Uh -oh. For sure, will be on the web. <laughs> Now, everything he just said is provably false. And of course, he knows that, which is why he doesn't try to prove any of the things he's saying as true. That's what the media is there for, to tell everybody that the things Bill Gates is saying are actually true. But he starts off by saying the media did a pretty good job of getting the correct information out there. But it would have been improved if on the screen where they show the death numbers, they were actually showing it as vaccinated versus unvaccinated, believing that somehow that would show people that the vaccine was very safe and effective and not being vaccinated was actually really dangerous. I don't know any unvaccinated people who have died from covid. Maybe you do. Maybe you do. And if you do, I would love to ask you what the other conditions surrounding that death were. Like how old was the person? What comorbidities did they have? What protocols were used for their treatment? And whether or not the death was simply called a COVID death. But the numbers on vaccinated versus unvaccinated in terms of death are not good for Bill Gates. In fact, they're so bad that Scotland is now no longer reporting them, as I talked about last week. There was an article in the New York Times yesterday talking about how the CDC had consistently delayed putting data out to the public because they were worried that the data might cause vaccine hesitancy. And so not only do you have to trust the science insofar as the CDC tells you the science, you also have to trust the science insofar as the CDC gets to decide what the science is at any moment and then tell you to trust them. So arguing with the CDC is a form of not trusting the science. And then Gates talks about how it's this really funny conspiracy theory out there that Anthony Fauci and I are preventing people from getting effective treatments, even though it's documented that they are, even though it is 
fully explained and historical examples of the same thing are fully explained in Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s book, The Real Anthony Fauci. So that's a conspiracy theory. Ha ha ha. Think about all those crazy people out there that believe Anthony Fauci and I have killed hundreds of thousands of people. Then he says that the uptake on the vaccine, not enough people began to take it fast enough. The vaccine hesitancy contributed to the loss of hundreds of thousands of lives. Well, which ones are they? Which hundreds of thousands of lives did the vaccine hesitancy end? Because we know the tests are wrong. We know the death reporting is wrong. We know we didn't have the vaccine in 2020 and lost hundreds of thousands of lives. So then once we get the vaccine and there's no reduction whatsoever in COVID deaths, in fact, they continue to rise under the fake president Joe Biden with the vaccine in place. We are still supposed to believe that vaccine hesitancy contributed to the loss of hundreds of thousands of lives. Also, mask hesitancy contributed to the loss of people's lives because they were getting your grandmother sick and then your grandmother died from COVID. Do masks work at all in preventing the spread of an aerosolized virus? No. But if you choose not to wear one, well, then you've killed people. And you see masks. I don't know what the big deal is. He says, while not wearing a mask. Wearing a mask is just like wearing pants. You're supposed to put it on to cover up your private parts when you go out of the house. That's what pants are for, right? And so just the same, you should be expected to cover up your nose and mouth because Bill Gates doesn't want to see the noses and mouths of anyone who doesn't own a private plane And he probably also makes exceptions for whores. If masks are just like pants and you're not wearing a mask, you might as well not be wearing pants. And Bill Gates isn't wearing a mask. How can you make that argument while not wearing a mask? It's actually incredible. But he didn't say anything of substance in that entire segment. His only goal there was derision. He was trying to make fun of people that believe the actual science, which is in direct conflict with his agenda. He wants to make fun of those people. He is at the Munich Security Conference, right, with the world's elite. All those people in that room were probably educated or indoctrinated at very prestigious universities. These are all of the world's smartest, most powerful people. And he doesn't even need to make a case to them. He just needs to joke about everybody else that isn't on board with what he's saying. All those small, dirty, unwashed masses, those disgusting people down there that aren't dying fast enough. The only way that any of that can even be taken seriously is if you already presume that Bill Gates definitely always knows what he's talking about by virtue of being Bill Gates. He is somehow the expert on all of this stuff. It's like he had Rachel Maddow's writers give him all his lines. Yet somehow we're not only supposed to take everything Bill Gates has said Seriously, we're supposed to take it as the only set of serious things one can say. Also this weekend in Munich, Kamala Harris met with Ukrainian President Zelensky and Zelensky wondered aloud, if you're saying that there is a 100 percent chance 
Russia is going to invade Ukraine and that you're going to stop them from doing so with these severe sanctions. Why haven't you imposed the sanctions yet? What is stopping you from acting? If the goal is to prevent some violent Russian aggression, why haven't you made a move? And thank goodness they have Kamala there to handle the situation. The purpose of the sanctions has always been and continues to be deterrence. These are some of the greatest sanctions, if not the the, the strongest that we've ever issued. But if Putin has made up his mind, do you feel that this threat that has been looming is really going to deter him? Absolutely. We strongly believe. And, and remember also that the sanctions are a product not only of our perspective as the United States, but a shared perspective among our allies. Within the context of a diplomatic path still being open, the deterrence effect, we believe, has merit. It's beginning to look like these proposed sanctions are largely a bluff. The most severe sanction that they seem to be discussing is removing Russia from the SWIFT system so that they are harmed in terms of making international financial transactions. But Vladimir Putin doesn't seem to care, and he also seems like he has been making moves up to this point to prepare Russia for the event that they're taking off of SWIFT. But let's think about the sanctions here. We have heard all sorts of stuff that Russia is going to do. They're going to invade on the 16th. No, they're going to invade tomorrow. No, it's tomorrow. No, it's tomorrow. They're going to stage a false flag. They're going to stage a false flag chemical attack. Hey, people are shooting things in Ukraine. It's probably the Russians. No, it turns out it's the Ukrainians. But the entire time they have been saying that Russia is continuing to escalate in the situation. And so if they're continuing to escalate in the situation, they cannot also simultaneously claim that the threat of sanctions has a deterrent effect. What behavior exactly are they deterring? It doesn't seem to be any behavior. Kamala Harris was saying that these are the strongest sanctions the U.S. has ever issued. And they're doing it, by the way, in coordination with their allies to preserve the sovereign territory of a country who is not officially an ally and where there is systemic corruption involving Joe Biden, Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton, among other global communists. And I was discussing this on Telegram yesterday, but isn't it odd to be in a position where you are imposing these very serious threats on another party And that party continues to escalate in the face of your threats. That's not how threats are supposed to work. If you're making threats and rather than the other party backing down, they're escalating, your threats are not effective. And it's a very strong indication that the other party isn't scared of you. And so I was comparing this yesterday to the part of the movie Monty Python and the Holy Grail, where King Arthur is fighting the Black Knight and the Black Knight is making all these threats about how he's going to kill them. And he gets his left arm chopped off and then his right arm chopped off and then his legs are chopped off and he's still making threats while he's just like a limbless body on the ground saying he's going to bite Arthur to death. 
That's what Joe Biden and Kamala Harris seem like right now. And that includes actually their international allies in Europe. And it seems like the fake administration and their allies are dramatically overestimating their position in this negotiation. They imagine that they're operating from a position of overwhelming power. And so they're making all these threats. But the person being threatened, Vladimir Putin, doesn't seem to see the power balance the same way at all. He actually seems to be the one operating in the position of power. He's being threatened and he escalates. And I think that this is what we see from our elites writ large, not just in terms of foreign relations, but in everything the fake administration is doing. They govern by issuing threats and trying to create fear and terror in the public, which, by the way, could properly be called terrorism as a governing philosophy. They are literally trying to achieve their political goals by using society wide terror and their bluffs are continuously called sometimes by Putin, sometimes by the people of the country. And so they're consistently misreading the power balance in any given situation. They think they're going to be able to accomplish X, Y, Z, and they don't get anywhere close to any of them. They get some early compliance and then everybody kind of backs off and then everyone sees, oh, no, they actually couldn't do that to us in the first place. They're not going to do it. They don't have the power to enforce any of it. So we're just not going to listen to them anymore. They are delegitimizing their own already illegitimate administration when they do these things. And then late yesterday, we got news that Joe Biden and Vladimir Putin had agreed in principle to have some sort of meeting that was facilitated by the French. Jack Posobiec on War Room this morning reported that he has sources in France who have told him that it wasn't Emmanuel Macron's government setting up this meeting. It was the fake administration in America frantically calling the French, asking them to facilitate the meeting. And they announced the plans of the meeting. Putin had never confirmed that he would be attending it. And now that meeting is just off. It's almost as if it was never going to happen anyway. But keep that in mind. Joe Biden was begging the French to set up a meeting, which means that his diplomatic channels to Russia have already broken down. He's not even being taken seriously by Vladimir Putin. So he got the French involved and they couldn't get it done either. And it seems like just maybe they were worried that what happened just now today might happen today. And they were probably trying to stave that off. So what just happened? Well, the two regions of eastern Ukraine that are being talked about so often in all this, they are kind of separatist regions from Ukraine already, and they have announced their independence, and Vladimir Putin has chosen to recognize their independence. And so it seems on some level that Vladimir Putin has already gotten what he wanted. Now there's just the matter of how the world community is going to respond. And you have to hope, as sad as it is to say, that Joe Biden will back down. We do not need a World War III right now in Ukraine. We do not need anyone trying to fight Russia over 
some separatist regions in Ukraine. That doesn't make any sense for American foreign policy. It certainly doesn't make any sense that we should be expending blood and treasure to prevent this situation from happening. Right now, the fake president is projecting extraordinary weakness to the world, and Vladimir Putin is taking advantage of it. And we will see whether or not it causes the fake administration and the global communist world order to react in some negative way. But maybe this is just the minor incursion that Joe Biden mentioned in his press conference a few weeks ago. So maybe this is just fine. And Putin addressed the nation for, I think, 42 minutes earlier. I haven't seen the whole thing. I've just seen clips, but I'm going to go through that later. It's a very, very interesting situation. And rather than going to meet Joe Biden today, he decided instead to recognize the separatist region's independence and to hold his own speech rather than anything that has to do with the fake administration or their allies. And in the hours leading up to Putin's speech and his announcement, the CIA asset Natasha Bertrand who's a journalist, wrote on Twitter, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan tells NBC this morning that Russia is planning an extremely violent invasion of Ukraine. That's a quote, extremely violent. U.S. has, quote, intelligence to suggest that there will be an even greater form of brutality against Ukrainians to repress them, to crush them, to harm them. (laughs) That is what the fake president's national security advisor, Jake Sullivan, who helped execute and promote the Russia hoax. That is what he is out there saying on the news. And she goes on more Sullivan, this time on ABC. This is a quote. All signs look like President Putin and the Russians are proceeding with a plan to execute a major military invasion of Ukraine. We have seen just in the last 24 hours further moves of Russian units to the border getting in position to attack. And you have to wonder if they are going to try to paint Putin's recognition of these separatist regions independence as the attack. I suspect they might try to show his speech and then intersperse little clips of violence between Ukraine and the separatists and try to make those things combine in people's minds. And now finally, and really quickly, I want to play you a really interesting political ad from candidate for the governor of Arizona, Carrie Lake. Now, Carrie Lake used to be an anchor woman and journalist in Arizona. And she's been kind of making a big push for governor this entire time. She attended Mike Lindell's cyber symposium. She has been a force in talking about election fraud, though she wasn't from the beginning. I had extreme doubts about her the first couple of times that I saw her talk specifically on war room because she was really weak on election fraud and anybody who's weak on election fraud, you can expect to be weak on other things or just straight up compromise. But you know, you want to give everybody a chance. The first impression isn't always the right one. Maybe she was a little worried. Maybe this really is where she stands on all these issues. And I want to give her the opportunity to be the person she needs to be 
to win support from the America First movement. But I think this ad is really bold because she comes right out of the gate saying that she is the Trump endorsed candidate. You know, even a lot of MAGA candidates are trying to just play that they're the individual that supports all the right things and that MAGA should like them for supporting all the right things. She goes right at it immediately. The Donald Trump supported candidate. Arizona, I'm Carrie Lake, the Trump endorsed candidate for governor. If you're watching this ad right now, it means you're in the middle of watching a fake news program. You know how to know it's fake? Because they won't even cover the biggest story out there, the rigged election of 2020. And rigged elections have consequences. We're all feeling it. Soaring prices, a spike in homelessness, and an invasion on our border. I'm the only candidate with a plan to tackle all of those issues and more. When I'm governor, we'll finish the wall, and criminals who cross our border will be sent back. We'll get the homeless out of our parks and off our streets, and no more masks, swabs, or shots to go to work or go to school. Our kids will get a real education, not a brainwashing. To see where I stand on all the issues, go to carrylake.com. Now let's send the corrupt news a lesson and turn them off. Carrie Lake for governor. Now that's about as good as it gets for political ads. That is going to be so effective. And I would bet, I would bet that at least one network, one channel refuses to play her ad because of what it says. Because it talks about election fraud being the most important issue in the country. And it is by far. Everything else is attached to that issue. All of it. The inflation, the illegal immigration, these foreign conflicts, everything with the John Durham investigation. All of this stuff all ties back to the same issues. They had to steal that election Because another term of Donald Trump would mean that the entire global communist Great Reset agenda would be falling apart even faster than it already is. Plus, they've got to cover up all of that corruption, spying on Trump's campaign, spying on Trump's White House, everything with the Clinton Foundation. All of it is falling apart. All of it connects directly to the stolen election. So. It's real President's Day, but there's only one duly elected president of the United States of America. That is Donald Trump. Joe Biden did not win the election and is not exercising lawful power. He's embarrassing the United States of America on the world stage. And we can only hope and pray that next President's Day, we won't have to be living in a country with 25 or 30 percent of the people out there thinking that the fake president is a real president. I'll be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic. And Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, download the Telegram Messenger app and go to t.me slash I'm Your Moderator. I'm on Gab, Getter, Rumble, and BitChute at I'm Your Moderator. 
You can find my writing at imyourmoderator.substack.com and the merch site is cancelcotour.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the show financially, there is a crypto wallet address in the episode description or go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And I'll see you again soon out on the range. Whether you're a total newbie to podcasting or even if you've had a show before like me, you know how intimidating it can be to start your show. The tech side especially can be daunting. That's why I'm so grateful Anchor exists. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. They knock down all the barriers to entry. Let me explain. First off, it's free. I don't know how or why, but I'm happy about it. The platform's great. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. I can't even begin to describe how much easier it was to get my show on all the major platforms this time than it was a few years ago. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. That's right. You build your show, you make money. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place, and the company is committed to the success of its content creators. Go download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. It's high noon! In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm Your Moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'mYourModerator.substack.com. The merch site is CancelCouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'mYourModerator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon, down on the range. It's hell!